had a situation in your life that felt final? Like it felt like you could never possibly change. Like this is the way it is and you might as well get used to it and learn to live with it because there's no possibility that it can change. You ever had a situation in your life like that? Maybe in your marriage, you, you, you know, your situation with your husband or your wife and you think they've been this way for a long time. We've been this way for a long time. It's just always going to be this way. Or maybe it's with your kids. You know, you've been praying for them to follow the Lord, and you've been praying year after year, and they, and they haven't yet, and, and, and you're tempted to give up hope because it's been this way for a long time, and it just kind of feels final. Or maybe there's some kind of addiction you've been fighting or some physical or mental or emotional health situation that, 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 that you've been praying against, and, and it, you feel like you're in that U2 song. You know, you're stuck in a moment, and you can't get out of it. You ever had a situation in your life like that? Or maybe, maybe that's how you feel with this whole COVID thing and, 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 and the division that's in our nation politically, racially, and in the church. Maybe you think maybe it's, the division is just too deep. It's just always going to be this way. Maybe it's not any of that. Maybe it's in your finances. Maybe you feel the, the crushing weight of debt, and every time you try to make a step forward, you take two steps backwards, and, and, and you're in this situation, whatever the situation is, and, it, and, and, and maybe it has nothing at all to do with anything that you did. Like, you didn't choose it. You didn't pick it. And, and maybe you're here today, and you're in the situation, and, and, it's, it's, and it's a situation that you never think is going to change, and it's all your fault. Like you did something, you made a mistake, you said something, you chose something, and now you're stuck with the consequences and, and, and you feel doomed. You, you might even feel cursed. You might even use that word cursed or you're scarred for life because of your failure and, and you feel hope slipping away. Well, I want to talk to you for just a few minutes today about when your situation seems final. And I, and I believe that the Spirit of God wants to breathe hope into some people today. I believe there's some people here, not a few, in this room and, and, and many maybe watching over live stream that God wants to remind you today that he is the God that does the impossible. He is the God who surprises us. This is the God whose power cannot be limited, whose love cannot be measured, whose grace cannot run out, and whose ways cannot be controlled or put in a box. And in fact, if you think you've put God in a box, what you have is no longer God. Because he cannot fit in a box. He is the God of Psalm 103, verse 2, when David says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This is what God is like. He's the God who forgives. He's the God who heals, the God who satisfies, the God who redeems. Even when, in our eyes, from our perspective, the situation seems final. It seems unchangeable. It seems hopeless. I want you to see this for yourself. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. I hope you brought your Bibles today because uh, this is a time, and, and I'm all for digital Bibles and putting the scripture up on the screen, uh, but there's something about having your paper Bible that kind of reminds you of where you are in the great story of redemption. And I want you to see some things. And, and I actually saw something this week that I'd never seen before in the scripture, okay? So I'm almost 50 years old, and I've been reading the Bible since I was born. Well, I'll start to say since I was born, but that would be a lie. I, I couldn't read when I was born. But uh, since I can read, uh, I've been reading the Bible, and I saw something I've never seen before because the Word of God is way deeper than you will ever plumb. 
You will never get to the Bible. There will always be truth in the scriptures that you haven't seen yet that he reveals to you. And, and this week was like this for me. I was watching a message by uh, Dr. Tony Evans, and he said something that spurred me on towards this. Uh, and I saw something I've never seen. I want to share it with you. I was kind of like a detective this week trying to run down leads. Anybody here like mysteries? You like to read or solve mysteries, okay? This, this week I was like a detective running down leads, talking to librarians, trying to uh, talk to some scholars and figure this out. Uh, and I've run down this and I want to share it with you. And so I was a detective during the week. Now I'm just a pastor sharing with God's flock uh, what, he, what, what, what I'm hearing, okay? 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 19. But to catch you up in the story, there's this guy named Naaman. He's an Aramean, he's a, a military commander, and he's captured this Israelite girl who's his servant. The problem with Naaman is he has leprosy, right? And the servant girl goes to his wife and says, here, uh, there's a prophet in Israel, and um, our master could be healed if he would just go down there. So Naaman talks to his king. His king says, yeah, go down there. He sends a letter to the king of Israel. The king of Israel takes it as if he's got to do this, right? And he says, he starts tearing his robe. Oh, my God, you know, you're just trying to pick a fight with me. And, and the a prophet Elisha hears about it, and he says, calm down. I mean, basically. He says, uh, these are my words, calm down, send him to me, right? So Naaman comes. He gets sent to Elisha. Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him. He just sends word by a servant to say to Naaman, here's what you do. Go down into the Jordan, dip seven times, and you'll be healed. Naaman is offended, and he's not going to do it. Now, here's the deal, just so you know. Sometimes offense can keep you from what God wants to do in your life. And he's, he's offended because he didn't come out to meet me. And, and, and by the way, don't we have better rivers in Damascus than this muddy, dirty old Jordan? And then his servant says, you know, master, if, if, if the prophet had asked you to do something really hard, wouldn't you have done it? And this is an easy thing. Naaman's like, yeah, you know, okay, fine. And, and, and he says, okay. And he goes over, he dips, and he gets healed. Seven times he gets healed. He's very excited. He changes. Now he's not arrogant. He's not offended. He's, not, he's healed. He goes back to the prophet, and he says, man, he said, I'm not going to worship any, I, there's only God, the God of Israel is the only God. I'm not going to worship any other God. I do, you know, when my master bows to his God, I have to hold his arm, so I do do that. So just pray that God won't judge me on that, but I'm not going to sacrifice to any other God. I want to, now let me pay you, let me, let me bless you for what you've given me. And Elisha says, uh, uh, and, and he takes an oath by the name of Yahweh, and he says, I'm not going to take any money. Because the point is, if I take money, then you're going to go back to the Arameans, and it's going to look like you just went and bought your healing. And I want God to get all of the glory. You didn't buy your healing. He did it out of his mercy and grace. He healed you, and there is a God in Israel. And that's where we pick up in the story, verse 19. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, or Gehazi, or Gehazi, however you want to pronounce it, we'll call him Z, all right, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, now, just stop right there for a second, it is very important what you say to yourself, because if you lie to yourself, you're going to be lying to other people pretty soon, and you're going to be believing lies. He said to himself, my master was too easy on naming this Aramean by not accepting what was brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. 
he swears by the name of Yahweh. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from his chariot. Look, he's already changed. Naaman was, you know, very easily offended before. He sees him coming, and he humbles himself. He gets down off of his chariot and says, is everything all right? Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. I'm not just going to give you one. Take two talents. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. Gehazi didn't even have to carry them. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants, put them away in his house. He sent the men away, and they left. Then he went in and stood before his master, Elisha. Where have you been, Gehazi? Elisha asked. Oh, your servant didn't go anywhere. I, 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 I'm right over here. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you? Some translations say my heart with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you. Is this the time to take money? In other words, there is a time to have money. This is not that time. This is, not the, is this the time to take money or to accept clothes, olive gardens, vineyards, flocks, herds, or men servants or maid servants? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and he was leprous as white as snow. Now, if there was ever someone who really screwed up and placed themselves in a situation that seemed irrevocable, it seemed unchangeable, it was Gehazi. Let's just review what he did. First of all, he calls Naaman this Aramean. Which all of most of the scholars that I read would say, this is dripping with contempt, okay? At best, it's prejudice against somebody who's not part of the people of God. At best, he's saying, you don't even got a covenant with God. I'm better than you. That's at, best. at worst, it's just outright racism. That's number one. Number two, he invokes Yahweh's name in an oath that does not honor Yahweh. Which is breaking the third commandment. By the way, the, the third commandment is don't take the Lord's name in vain. That doesn't mean don't say God and give him a last name that begins with a D. I mean, that is also taking the Lord's name in vain. But you know what that really means is putting the name of God on anything that's not of God. And that's exactly what he did. So he took the Lord's name in vain. He lies, which is breaking the ninth commandment, multiple times. He lies to himself, verse 20, to Naaman, verse 22. Just fabricates a story out of nothing. Verse 25, he, he lies to Elisha. He's full of greed. That's breaking the 10th commandment. He's actually stealing, which is breaking the 8th commandment. So how is, he, how is he stealing, you know? Elisha had refused the gifts so that Yahweh would get all the credit and the Arameans would know there's a God in heaven and a prophet in Israel, right? And so had Elisha taken the money, it would have looked like, the, to the Arameans at least, as if Naaman just bought his healing. Like he went to the doctor, he did his copay, he got his meds, and he got healed, and, and there you go. So here's what's happening. Gehazi, by taking the money, is robbing God of the honor and credit. He is touching God's glory. Then, if that wasn't enough, when he has the opportunity to confess and come clean and make it right, he just doubles down on his story. So let's review so far. In one event, Gehazi breaks the third, eighth, ninth, and tenth commandments. That's 40% of the top ten. Right? 
On top of that, he's filled at best with prejudice, at worst with racism. He is stricken then with leprosy immediately, irretrievably. This is an irreversible, permanent curse on him and his descendants forever. And that is not his opinion. That's not his feeling. The man of God said, this is forever. And what makes it worse is it isn't just him that will be paying for his sin. He has cursed his descendants. Listen. There is nothing worse for a parent than to know you hurt your kids. Every parent in here knows what I'm talking about right now. And this isn't just he hurt their feelings. This is leprosy. I mean, lepers had to stay outside the city gate. They had to announce their presence by saying unclean. They were outsiders. They weren't part of the community. They couldn't go to the temple. They couldn't worship. They couldn't participate with the people of God. This is a horrible curse. what makes it worse is it's all his fault. He's got nobody to blame but himself. You're not a leper, but do you know what that feels like? Do, do, do you know what it's like to be in a situation that seems like it's permanent and it's, and it's your fault? Well, Gehazi knows what that's like. But fascinatingly enough, his story is not over. If you have your Bibles now, I want you to flip over to chapter 8. Okay, in my Bible, that's two pages. I don't know how much it is in your Bible, but flip a couple pages and you'll probably be close. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 8, I'm going to start reading in verse 3. Now listen very closely. At the end of seven years, she, and the she there is the Shunammite woman whose son had died and Elisha had brought back to life. She came back from the land of the Philistines and went to the king to beg for her house and land. So she, there was a seven-year famine. She left for the seven years. She comes back. She wants to get her land back. She goes back to the king. Look at verse 4. The king was talking to... Wait. What? I thought the dude was a leper. Outside the city gate. Curse forever. Keep reading. He said, the king was talking to Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. And had said, tell me about all the great things Elisha has done. Just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to beg the king for her house and land. Gehazi said, this is the woman, my lord the king, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. Stop here for a second. What in the world just happened? What happened? End of chapter 5, he's cursed. He's a leper, he, he lost his job, he lost his status, he lost his place in community, he's even cursed his kids. Less than three chapters later, just two pages in my Bible, he not only has his old job back because he's called servant of the man of God, he, he doesn't have leprosy anymore, he's been healed and he gets a promotion. He's talking to the king. What in the world? I mean, listen, his situation which seemed final. I mean, the man of God said this is forever, apparently wasn't final. What seemed unchangeable has now changed. What in, something happened. What happened? Now, you go to the commentaries. Uh, there's several different options here. One, one, one kind of option that several commentators say is, you know, it, it's not chronological. And this story actually happened before chapter 5 because a lot of things in 2 Kings is out of order chronologically. And that is true that a lot of things are not necessarily in chronological order. The problem is the text very clearly says it was when the woman came in after the seven-year famine. 
So that's not going to work. Some people say, well, maybe it was a mild case of leprosy. And so the king, you know, made an exception. Okay, you know, it's not that. But that doesn't go with anything we know of the ancient Near East or the biblical instruction related to those who have leprosy. It doesn't fit at all. There is another possibility. That comes right out of the text. Whenever, whenever you're interpreting Scripture, you interpret Scripture with Scripture. So let's look. What happened between chapters 5 and chapter 8? Answer, chapters 6 and 7. <laughs> I worked really hard on this all week. Please try to keep up. Okay, please try to keep up. And what happened in chapter 6 and 7? Well, there's a seven-year famine. There's a siege by the Arameans that gets really bad. It's so bad that they, the text says a head of a donkey was selling for 80 shekels of silver. That is, the least edible part of an unclean animal was going for 80 shekels of silver. Worse than that, there was cannibalism. They had devolved into cannibal. The people of God had devolved into cannibalism, which is enough to make you sick to your stomach. And then we have a deliverance. From the siege in a fascinating story with who? Some unnamed lepers. Flip to chapter 7. So you started in chapter 5, you went to chapter 8, now you're going to roll back just one page to chapter 7, verse 3. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine's there and we'll die. If we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they, and this is one of the funniest sentences in the Bible. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. It's really airtight logic if you think about it. If they kill us, then we're dead. But what's the point? We're dead anyway. We go back there, we're dead. We stay here, we're dead. If we go there, we're probably going to be dead, but maybe not. So they go. And as they're going, the, the Aramean army hears a God, Yahweh, causes them to hear a whole other army. So just imagine it's four lepers, you know, they're walking, and what they hear is horses and chariots and armor and all this. They take off running. They leave everything there. When the lepers get there, they discover, oh, there's food, there's money, there's armor, there's clothes, there's these tents, you know, and, and they're like... This is pretty cool. So they start eating, and they, they're, they're going to carry some stuff away and store it away, you know, like a squirrel getting ready for the winter. They're storing stuff away. And then look at verse 9. Then they said to each other, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So if you've had time to read the rest of the story, the, the, the king doesn't believe him at first. He sent somebody out to go check it out, and it's not only true. It's actually better than what they said. They were underselling the whole deal, and they go out, and it, it totally restores everything. Stay with me. Stick with me here. Chapter 5, Gehazi is cursed forever with leprosy. Chapter 8, he's got his old job back. He's healed of leprosy, and he's got a promotion. Chapter 7. The four lepers, I believe, are Gehazi and his three sons. Now watch. I've tried to run leads down on this all week. Dr. Tony Evans, you know, 
he's convinced this is right. He, like, when, he, when, when he speaks about it, he just says, that's for sure Gehazi and his three sons. At first, I wasn't convinced until I was able to run down an ancient rabbinic tradition which says, uh, 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 rabbis from way back when, who say this leper was Gehazi and these other three were his three sons. It's recorded in the Talmud, but it's, it, it, which is just a compilation of rabbinic teachings. But it goes back, the, the, the oral tradition goes back way further than that. And this is the way oral tradition worked in, in, within the Jewish world. You had the written law, of the, like the five books of Moses, and then you had the prophets, and you had the, prophet, you know, you had the wisdom literature and the Psalms and all of that. Uh, and, and so that was written. But they also had oral tradition. And this is what Jesus is, is uh, you know, addressing in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, but I say, right? Because the way the, the rabbis did this is, for oral tradition, they would say something like this. I have it on the authority of Rabbi Hillel, who has it on the authority of Rabbi Shammai. Who, I'm just using Jewish rabbi names now. I have it on the authority of Rabbi Eleazar, who has it on the authority of Rabbi, you know, Simeon Bar Kokhba, who has it on, and, it's, and they would try to go as far back as they could go, and the further you went back, the more authority it had and this tradition goes way back so if the rabbis are right it gives us some insight into the story and the change that happened in Gehazi see in chapter 5 he's all about himself in chapter 8 that's his knee-jerk reaction but then they realize we're just doing what we what I did in chapter 5 we're not going to do that and they give it all away they are unselfish. Where he was greedy before, they're now unselfish. And they do that not so that they will get healed. There's no mention here. They don't say, listen, if we do this, maybe we'll be healed of being, uh, you know, of this whole thing of being a leper. Maybe God will heal. They, don't, there's no, they just said, what we're doing is not right. We're going to do the right thing. So we get, no, because it's right. See, something changed in Gehazi. And here's what's very important for us to see. Something changed inside of him before it changed outside of him. See, see, many times, maybe not always, but many times, God wants to change something inside of us before he changes what's outside of us. See, if you don't know this, there may be things that happen in your life that you totally misunderstand. You don't get what's going on because you don't realize... God, to use a good YWAM phrase, God is more concerned about your character than he is your comfort. Have you noticed? He's after something in you. Many times God wants to change something in us before he changes the situation. And sometimes what can happen is you get into what seems like an irreversible, irrevocable situation and you're there and what he wants to do is turn something inside of you before he changes the situation. Now, reading this story, as we should read all Old Testament scripture, through the lens of Jesus and the cross in the New Testament, I think one of the things the Lord might be saying to us in this season, corporately, as we see all this division in our world, politically and otherwise, and COVID and all that, and maybe what he's saying to us individually is, he's after something in us. He, it's not to say he did all this stuff, it's to say he's after something in us. He wants to change us to be more like Jesus. Romans 8, verse, everybody knows Romans 8, 28, right? And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But do you know verse 29? For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. It is our destiny to be like Jesus. 
That's what God's doing. God is actively working in us, and he can use really hard things that maybe we don't like to shape us into the image and the likeness of Jesus. This is important to remember because if you don't remember this, you'll get your eyes off of Jesus when things start getting really hard, and you'll look at the situation, and what he wants you to do is look at him. 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which is from the Lord who is the Spirit. I could go on with other scriptures. Here's the point. God is making us like Jesus. This is what he's, listen, God, who you are becoming is way more important than what your situation is. Way more important. Who you're, whatever, you're, whatever situation you're in, who you are becoming is way more important than what the situation is. But even there, God can change the situation. So let me just give you some quick, I'll just summarize my thoughts and three very quick lessons. What we learned from Gehazi, and these are valid even if you don't buy my idea that, it, it's not my idea, it's the rabbi's idea, that this was Gehazi and his three sons. Now I think you should. Look, I, I don't think I'm always right, but I always think I'm right. <laughs> I know there's sometimes I'm wrong, but if I'm saying it at that moment, it's because I think it's right. So I'm right about this. But even if you don't buy that, these truths are helpful and come right out of the text. Number one, though we have sinned, there is forgiveness. See, Gehazi sinned in the story a lot. But we can't be proud and look down on him. We can't be judgmental of him. We Listen, as, Christian, we, as Christians, we ought to be the most humble people on the planet. Because we know we've sinned. We didn't save ourselves. Isaiah 53, verse 6, we all, not we, some of us, a few of us, 50% of us, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him. This is prophetic of Jesus. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. That's a hard verse to misinterpret. Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So here's the deal. We've all sinned, right? There's an old saying, the the ground is level around the cross. It's not that, you know, I'm better than you or you're better than me. Look, we've all sinned and we all got to come to the cross because of grace, but there is forgiveness. This is the beauty of the gospel. We don't save ourselves. We don't earn our acceptance by God. It's not about what we do. It's about what he did. That's why Jesus said at the Last Supper, and we're going to take communion here in just a few minutes, he said, Matthew 26, verse 28, this is the blood of the covenant, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1, verse 13, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. Now I can apply this in a couple of ways very quickly. Number one, maybe you're here today and you've never responded to the gospel. Maybe you've never, maybe you've never heard the gospel or maybe you have heard it but you've never responded to it. You've never said, you know what? I have sinned. I have messed up. I have screwed up a lot of things in life and you can just come to him because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ because Jesus took your sin on himself just like he took my sin on himself. He died on the cross in my place, in your place and he rose from the dead and you can and today can be the day of salvation for you. 
And that, that's part of the gospel story. But I think for a lot of people here, that's not where you are. I think for a lot of people here, you, you, you know this. Like this is review, except that you don't really let it in. I think there's probably more people here who you don't really let yourself feel forgiven. It's like you try to imprison yourselves and, and, and you, try to, you try to punish yourself for your past failure and you never let yourself feel clean like you are. You never really let yourself feel forgiven like you are. And you think that's a spiritual thing to do. Like, I'm going to carry around this guilt and shame, and it shows how, how, how spiritual I am. No, it doesn't. If you walk around not allowing yourself to feel clean and forgiven as God says you are, here's what you're saying. My sin is greater than Jesus' cross. He might be able to pay for everybody else's, but I have sinned more than everybody else. Ooh. You haven't. The cross is way more powerful than any sin you have ever committed. And you know how to honor that? It's to live in the reality of that truth. Just believe it. Though we have sinned, there is forgiveness. Number two, though we have failed, failure is not our identity. Now notice in the story here, after the sin, after the curse... He, he gets, you know, this, he gets leprosy, he loses his job, everything. But then you get to chapter 8, he's called the servant of the man of God again. And he gets promoted. And in chapter 7, he's not named as the leper. Now, why would that be? Because it would have saved me a lot of time this week. I was on the phone with librarians. I, you know, connected with this library in California. And, and it was, it like, it would have saved me a lot. Of, you know, whoever was editing 2 Kings, couldn't they just, like, Dude, it was Gehazi. Like, would that take him that long? You know what I think is going on? I think it's because his identity was never in his failure. And it was never in the curse. That wasn't who he was. That was never his identity. Let me tell you something. Your identity is not in your past. Your identity is not in your sin, in your failure. It's not also in your current situation. It's in who Jesus says you are. That's who you really are. You know what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 6, he goes through a whole long list and he says, these people, these people, these people, and he starts naming people who aren't going to be in the kingdom of God, are not going to inherit the kingdom, and then he says, chapter 6, verse 11, and that is what some of you were. Pastor, that's who you used to be, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone's in Christ... If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Just a few verses later, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, and that's who we are. If we're in Christ, then when God looks at us, he doesn't see. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. Oh, this is good news. This is why Paul said in Philippians 3, I don't want to have my own righteousness from obeying the law. I want to have the righteousness that is by faith that comes from God. I want to be found in him. His righteousness. Listen, if God says you are something, then you are that. Whether you feel like it or not. Right? So if God says you're holy, and you say, well, I don't, I, I don't really feel holy. 
so. I don't want to be harsh. I don't want to be like the feelings police. I know some, you know, and I probably have myself in the past come off like I'm the, don't feel that way. That's the wrong way to feel. Don't feel. I don't want to come off that way. But I do want to come off with the truth of if God says something, it's true whether you think it is or not. Like the word of God is true whether or not you like it. And, and you don't stand above God's word and judge it. It judges you. Right? And, and so if God says you are holy, then guess what? Well, I don't feel it. Well, am I supposed to believe you over God? Nobody would say that. That's our identity. Don't allow Satan to lie to you and tell you that you are what your past is. Or you are what's been done to you. Or you are anything other than who God says you are. Though we have sinned, there is forgiveness. Though we have failed, failure is not identity. You know, and and here's what I find fascinating about this. If I'm right, and the rabbis are right, and I am. But if I, let's, you know, maybe I'm not. I'm just giving the room for that. But if, if I'm right, then what did God do? God gave Gehazi a chance to retest. He failed it the first time. God says, tee it back up, baby. Let's take it again. Doesn't that sound like God? Have, have you ever, I mean, he, he failed the test in chapter 5. He passed it in chapter 7. Have you ever failed the test and then had to retake it? I, I went, when I was, at, the first time I was in seminary, uh, the seminary I went had comprehensive exams once you got enrolled and that you had, to ta- you had to pass these exams or else you had to take a remedial course and pay for it and get no credit. And ain't nobody got time for that, right? So, um, uh, so it was a New Testament one and an Old Testament one. I didn't study for the New Testament one. I just said you had to, in fact, this is to show you how long ago it was. You couldn't take it on your phone. You had to go to a computer lab get a number from the person at the desk going, and then you could take the exam. Well, I took the New Testament one. I didn't study. I aced it. I got like a 96 or a 98. I'm thinking, and then something happened. I got cocky. And I know some of you are looking at me going, really? You got cocky? I did. (laughs) I know know it's hard to believe. I got cocky. So I went and I tried to take the Old Testament. I didn't study for the Old Testament one either, and I was doing great until I got to the Minor Prophets. And I bombed them. I couldn't even remember who was king when who was a prophet and who, what they said. What was Nahum about? I can't remember. I, it, it, and and uh, Obadiah, Oba who? Obadiah? I, I, I mean, I didn't. And I failed it. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I've wasted time and money. And how am I going to tell Marlene? And, you know, like, that's why I was feeling bad. And the guy who was sitting at the desk said, man, calm down. You got six months to pass this. I said, what? He said, you can take as many times as you want. And you just got to pass it in the first six months. I'm thinking, this is great. I get to retest and do it over. So what I did was I took an Old Testament class, and then I took the test, and I aced it. <laughs> here's my point. Here's my point. Sometimes God gives us an opportunity to retest. So here's what you do. Keep your eyes open. And look for the opportunity to retest. Because for the believer in Jesus Christ, failure is not final. It's not. So, though we've sinned, there is forgiveness. Though we failed, failure is not our identity. And number three, and finally, though the consequences seem irreversible, God does the miraculous. See, his situation, Gehazi's situation seemed irreversible. In fact, the man of God said it was irreversible. He said this is forever. But then there's a miracle. 
and he's restored. Listen, there are, I don't have time to go through all of them, but there's tons of examples in the Bible of situations where God said, this is going to happen. People repented, and he changed. 2 Kings 20, 2 Kings 20, there's a story about Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, and God said, you, get, get ready, you're going to die. Just get your house in order, you're going to die. He repents, he cries out to God, he's weeping, and God goes, okay, okay, I'll give you 15 more years. There, there's a story in, in, in Jeremiah chapter 18, there's, there's a story of the potter and the clay, and God's speaking to Jeremiah, and he goes to the potter's house, and the potter's making something, and then something goes wrong, or the potter changes his mind, and he just, he crumbles it down, and he makes something else. And God says, that's how it is. I'm the potter, you're the clay. And some people, you know, use that text to say, well, God just does whatever he wants and you don't even matter. And that's not what the point of the text was because the very next verse, God says, if I say to a nation that it's cursed and it's going to be judged and they repent, I can change my mind. You know why? Because I'm the potter, you're the clay. And then he says, if I say to a nation, you're going to be blessed and built up, and they do evil in my sight, and they disobey me, I can judge them. You know why? I'm the potter. You're the clay. So in a situation that you're in that may feel impossible, guess what? He's the potter. You're the clay. He can change it. Or take, take the story. Remember this? In, 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 in Mark chapter 9, there's a story about this father who comes, and his son is demonized, and he's been this way since childhood, since he was little. He comes to the disciples. Disciples can't do anything about it. Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, being transformed and his glory. The veil of the flesh is being pulled back and his glory is being revealed. He comes down the mountain and his disciples are in an argument. And Jesus is like, I'm going to go back up the mountain. No, he didn't say that. He goes, he goes, what's going on, you unbelieving generation? Every once in a while, Jesus could throw a barb. What, and, the, and, the, and the father says, I, you know, I have my son is demonized. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't do anything. So if you can do anything. Do you remember what Jesus said? If I can do anything, everything is possible to him who believes. You see what he was doing? Jesus was saying, it ain't about whether or not I can do it. I'm the son of God. I, what do you mean can I do It's about can you believe. This is not me. This is, can you believe? And remember what he said? I love this because I am this dude. I believe. Help my unbelief. And his boy, who had been demonized most of his life, they thought it would be forever. This is an irrevocable situation. Gets delivered and healed. Because God can change an impossible situation. And if you're saying, look, I, I just, I don't know, it's been this way for so long, it, it's, it's impossible. Let me tell you something. Impossibility is the habitat for miracles. If it wasn't, they wouldn't be called miracles. Like I have a, I have a sign in, in my office that says, uh, if we knew what we were doing, it wouldn't be called research. And, and, and the truth is, if the situation wasn't impossible, it wouldn't be called a miracle. He can do a miracle in the situation, but let me tell you something. The biggest miracle, the biggest miracle is what he does in you. 